Many of you uh, uh, have met him and know of his family. He grew up in Liberia, uh, but now pastors a church called The Grove in uh, Chandler, Arizona. It's a privilege to have you back, Palmer. Well, the privilege really is mine, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart, to be at Macon First Press, because you have a long legacy and history when it comes to to world missions and changing this world for Jesus Christ. I love the passion of your pastor, uh, Pastor Chip Miller. I love the passion of your other pastors and leaders, and Eric and Mark and Jonathan, who I've gotten to know, and Kimberly. By the way, they're, they're pie- the pieces they've done for this conference, uh, One Life Matters, Your Life Matters, is a great piece, and it's a great motto, slogan to have this week. If you have your Bibles open to James chapter 2, and I say I resonate with, with this line, One Life Matters, because I started on Friday by saying, the way you live every day matters. Because the way that you live every day is a picture of your soul. You see, how you live on the outside is a picture of what's going on on the inside. And sometimes we think there's two different things and they're not. And so how you live every day matters, the things that you do with your life. We read about that in James. I'll start in verse 14. And Jesus' brother writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some of you will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without any deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Great words from Jesus' brother James. You see, sometimes we think the way we live doesn't matter. And James is saying here, no, the way you live this life really does matter. The things that you do on the outside are a picture of what's going on on the inside of your soul, where your heart really is with God. I want to make a few observations and make a, a, make a few statements from the book of James. I want to start in verse 27 in chapter 1. And I want to say this first about true religion. I want to talk about a kind of faith, a kind of life after God that is true. And James 1.27, he writes, religion that is true or pure and pleasing to God, then he goes on to say, is to love, for example, orphans and care for widows. And I want to say this, and if you have a handout this morning, you can look at it and fill it in. But I'll start by saying this, true religion, your religion is true when you are bothered by the things that are not right in this world. True religion means that you really are bothered by what is not right in this world. I wrote a book, my first book that's been published nationally came out in June, and I chose the title True Religion, in part from this verse, James 1.27, but in part I chose the title of the book because of a brand of jeans. I had heard there was a brand of jeans that was fantastically popular with the with the Hollywood crowd and the fabulously wealthy and all of your high school students. <laughs> They're called True Religion Brand Jeans. And I'd heard they were very expensive. But I wasn't convinced until I was walking through a store one, one day in Chandler, Arizona, and I saw True Religion Jeans. So I thought, well, I stop, I'll stop and see, are they really as expensive as people say? 
And I, and I don't want to mention what store it is because I don't want you to judge a store and not shop there anymore, and that's not my point. But I picked up the jeans, and when I looked at the tag, they were $349. And I thought, man, that's expensive, even for Nordstrom's. That's a lot of money. doesn't matter where, but it was a lot of money even for that store. And I put them back down carefully so I didn't damage them. $349 plus tax. And then I started to think like this. I started to think, what if I had $349 that I could spend? But what if, what if um, instead of spending them on jeans, I spent them on something else? You see, I thought about the fact that this last June, I, I, I told you on Friday we had, I told our people, I gave them a crazy challenge. I said, I want 100 people in Africa this summer. It was a bit audacious. We ended up with 102 people in Africa at the same time in June, and I had 15 teams spread out in two countries, Malawi and Liberia. Uh, One of my teams in Malawi, their only job was to put roofs on the houses of widows. And the first hut that the village chief showed us that needed a roof, she said, this widow has nine children living with her, children and grandchildren. And I walked in the hut, and I looked up at the thatch roof, and I could see right through it to the clear blue sky. And I thought, if anyone needs a roof, she needs a roof. It only took us like 10 minutes to pull the whole roof off. And then by the end of the day, we had framed up a new roof and put on a metal, a tin roof, and it was beautiful. And now the kids could sleep without the rain coming through on them. And, and the material, the lumber and the, the sheeting for the roof cost almost exactly $350. So I'd ask, so the question hit me, what if I had $350 to spend? And I could either spend it putting a roof on a widow's home who had nine children, or I could spend it on one pair of jeans. But then I chose to spend it on the pair of jeans. Then wouldn't my religion be a little messed up? You see, wouldn't my religion fail to be true at that point? You see, that's, James says that's not what true religion is like. You see, James is trying to get us to believe and be convinced that the problems of this world are not someone else's problems. That God and Christ has put the task into our hands to share the love and the hope, the eternal life of Jesus Christ, and to change the world of even orphans and widows who are hurting. I, I, when I talk about this, I can't help but think of the first students I started taking out of the United States. I started in ministry over 20 years ago in Southern California as a junior high pastor. And so in the summer, I started taking kids from Southern California across the border into Tijuana, Mexico. And the first place I took them, started taking students was to a garbage dump. There's a huge garbage dump outside of Tijuana. And there's a crowd of people there called pickers. Uh, pickers live on the edge of the dump, and then they have their children with the mother and the father pick through the garbage all day as it's dumped, and they try to find things that they can sell on the street. The kids, the pickers, who, the children who are pickers are filthy. They're barefoot. Their hands are filthy. Their feet are filthy. Their hair is matted. And so when I take kids there, all they do all day, usually the girls, they spend the whole day just giving baths and washing kids and combing their hair. My boys end up spending most of the time playing soccer with the kids. But the girls braid their hair, and then we bring clothes, and we put clean clothes on them and put shoes on their feet. And they leave beautiful. At the end of the first day there, we, I piled everyone back in the van at sunset, and we start to drive off. We're leaving the dump, and I hear one of my junior high girls sobbing behind me. She's trying to stay quiet, but I could hear her weeping. And I, and I turned, and I said, Kate, what's, what's wrong? And she said, 
She said, it's the kids, Palmer. I said, well, you did good with the kids today. I said, you bathed dozens of them. They were beautiful when you left. And then she said this. She asked me this. She said, but Palmer, who will wash them tomorrow? See, I think we look at the world's problems and we think somebody else will do it. But in most of the world, the case is, the truth is, there's no one else going to wash them tomorrow. There's no one else going to put roofs on the houses of widows tomorrow. There's no one else going to hang mosquito nets on a continent in Africa where a child dies every 30 seconds because of malaria. And so God calls us to do some of those things as we share the love and the hope of Jesus Christ. James says, true religion is to be bothered by the problems of this world. I'll say this next about true religion. I really believe that if your religion is true, then it requires action. And I want to read James 2.18 again. I read it once, but this time I want to read it in the ISV because the translators used an interesting word. Instead of deeds or doing, as some of your Bibles say, they use the word action. And I think it's a great word to represent our call as Christians. He says, He writes it like this, but someone may say, you have faith and I have actions, but show me your faith without any actions and I will show you my faith by my actions. Isn't that great? Verse 17 says it like this, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You see, I think the Christian life is really a life that that can be full of adventure and action when we start living the way that God calls us to. I think there's two lives out there to live. I often talk about there's two worlds. There's, there's, There's the life we live every day. And sometimes that life becomes a a routine that we're stuck in. Sometimes that life becomes catatonic because we get stuck in a routine because we keep doing the same things over and over because it's safe and that's the life we live but then there's another life out there and a lot of us dream about that life we lay in bed thinking about the life we could live and one day we might live but it's the uh, many times it becomes the unlived life and it becomes and and the life we live instead becomes a life of regret I think when I, when I say this, I think about uh, John Ortberg. John Ortberg is one of my favorite writers. He pastors a church in California, and he writes about his neighbor, his neighbor Molly. And his neighbor is three years old. And he said Molly, when she turned three, her mother bought her, her parents bought her a tricycle. And Molly, first thing she did was bust out to the sidewalk. And her mother stood back at the driveway and said, hang on, Molly. Uh, I have to give you some boundaries here. She said, Molly, um, you see the tree down here to your right? You see it by the neighbor's house. You can only go down the sidewalk that far. And then look the other way, Molly. There's another tree down there by those, our neighbor's house there. You can't go past that tree because I love you and I don't want something bad to happen. And if you go past those tree, Molly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to spank you. Well, Molly looked at her mother, then she looked at the tree here and the tree here and kind of shook her head, and then she started going backwards, just backpedaling towards her mother. And uh, she backed up, backed up, and then she stopped. And then she said, Mom, she said, you're saying I can't go past that tree, or if I go past that tree, you're going to spank me. She said, Mom, she said, I have places to go and things to do, and so you better go ahead and spank me right now. That's how we're supposed to live this life. Sometimes we get stuck between the trees and we don't do a whole lot and we don't accomplish much in the name of Jesus Christ. When really he's calling us to live a life, as James says, that is full of action. 
And if you're writing anything down this morning in the outline, Phil, finish this statement. Sometimes you must act in order to stop the very worst things in this world from happening. Jesus often talked about that. Do you remember in, in Luke chapter 10, he talked about a man who was beaten and left on the side of the road. He said, but then some of you thought you were too religious to stop. And so he talked about some of you, he said, were so religious that you walked around the man on the side of the road. But he said, your religion was not right. Your religion was not true. And his, he, what he was pleading with us to do was to stop and care about the man on the side of the road. Why do we not live this way? Uh, why do we not live the life we dream of living? I've read about an idea called resistance, and I think sometimes resistance sits in our heart and we don't even know it. Resistance is probably somewhere in your life, and you just haven't named it. For example, if you've ever bought a treadmill, you know what resistance is like, because right now that treadmill is in the garage collecting dust. Don't lie to me, but that's where it is. Uh, you know resistance if you've ever thought about finishing college. You know resistance if you've ever considered starting your own business. You know what resistance is if you thought, I'll learn to, be, to paint and be an artist. Or I'll learn to play the piano or the guitar. Then you know resistance. You know resistance if you've ever had this thought, I'm going to do something great for God. It's not that any of us lay in bed and say, I'm not going to do anything great for God. We just say this, I'm going to do something great for God tomorrow. That's resistance speaking. And I want to say, no, sometimes you must act to stop the worst things in this world from happening. We've been talking about those things this week, and I'll make this statement too. Sometimes you must act in order for the very best things in this world to happen in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how Jesus walked this world. In Mark chapter 5, we read of him walking into a man's house and he had been told his daughter was dead and he walked in the room and you know the story he looked at the girl laying there and what did Jesus say he kind of I think he laughed he goes she's not dead I'll take care of this and then he bent down and he reached out his hand he said Talitha come get up Talitha it's time to get up and he helped her up you see Jesus walked this earth doing the very best things. And sometimes the, only, the very best things in this world only happen when you serve God and you do that in his name. When I say this, I think about Jennifer Price. I just met Jennifer last Sunday night. Can I tell you about Jennifer? Jennifer's a reporter in Victoria, Texas. And Jennifer had been to Malawi serving with Children of the Nations. And when she came back, she read about about Barefoot Sunday at the Grove, the church that I pastor. And then she got a hold of me in October on Facebook, and she said, Palmer, I want to have a Barefoot Sunday for the whole city of Victoria, Texas. Can you help me? And I thought, geez, that's a bit audacious. So I wrote back, I guess. But I was kind of a skeptic. I wasn't sure how this was going to turn out. Well, here's what Here's what 25-year-old Jennifer Price did. She first enlisted three other reporters with her newspaper. She writes for the Advocate newspaper, the oldest newspaper in Texas. And then they went around church to church all over the city. They got 20 churches to participate in Barefoot Sunday. Not only that, they got four schools to participate in Barefoot Sunday. One second-grade class, when they gave their shoes last week Friday, they insisted on going barefoot the rest of the day. 
Other classes wanted to follow, but the principal had to put a stop to it. There's was, there was legal ramifications, I guess. But at least one second grade class got to do it. And then there was one 10th grade student who heard about it. He said, what good are shoes without socks? So he went on a sock drive and collected over 2,000 pairs of socks. Well, I preached my three services last Sunday, got on a plane, flew to Houston. Someone met me, sped two hours to Victoria, Texas. I walked in the door for their closing event on Barefoot Sunday. Their goal had been to collect 1,000 pairs of shoes in one day. Instead of 1,000 shoes, they had over 5,000 pairs of shoes. One girl named Jennifer on one Sunday. Here's what I love, too. The newspaper, because the shoes were all over the city, they sent, after the, the delivery trucks had delivered papers in the morning, they became pickup trucks. And they picked up shoes all over the city and brought them to the one church where we met that night. You see, sometimes we think one person's life doesn't matter. Sometimes we think my life doesn't matter and I can't do a whole lot. Shoes aren't the end goal. Shoes are just a metaphor for what we're supposed to do in many ways. Yes, they meet a great need. But my point is, is that you, with the one life, the mo- this very important life God has given you to live, you can change what is not right in this world. You can sh- share the love and hope of Christ. You see, true religion, I said last night, is meant to be lived. I'll say this next as we look, go back to James chapter 2, verse 14. I'll say this about religion that is true. Religion that is true means that you live generously. It's a way of life, and that's how you live. That's what James calls us to. Look at verse 15 with me. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if, and if one of them says to you, I'm sorry, And and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? He says, your faith is dead. Your religion's not true. And so can I just say this? I hope that you as a person, an individual, or a couple, or a family, or a church, I hope you can begin to live generously. It's a way of life. It's a way to live every day. The problem we face in our culture today is that we have a lot of stuff, at least in Chandler. Let's not talk about Macon. I don't need to get in your kitchen. So I'll just talk about, I'll just talk about people in Chandler. People in Chandler have a lot of stuff. Don't tell them I told you this. They have so much stuff that most people, even at my church, they can't park their cars in the garage because they have so much stuff. In fact, some of them have so much stuff, they go and rent storage units just to put their stuff there because they value their stuff. You see, but the truth is, if we're honest, we all have stuff and we all want stuff and we buy stuff and we insure our stuff and we collect stuff and we compare our stuff to other people's stuff and we treasure our stuff because we love the stuff that we have. And everyone tries to collect their pile of stuff, don't we? And whoever has the most stuff at the end wins, don't they? (laughs) I don't know about that. But it seems like that's the goal. It's not that stuff is wrong or evil. There's just, there's nothing wrong with owning things. It's just that it won't last. And maybe the bigger problem is, is that sometimes our things begin to own us. I think... Inside somewhere, we never say this, but we believe if our pile of stuff is big enough, then we'll be happy. If our pile of stuff is big enough, then we'll be more generous. 
or will feel more fulfilled. If my pile of stuff is big enough, then my family will be safe. We kind of think that. Have you ever noticed how two-year-olds become very attached to their stuff? Have you noticed that? When you try to take their stuff from them, they say, no, that's my favorite. Two-year-olds are delusional, aren't they? (laughs) But it's just not two-year-olds. I think something deep inside every human soul kind of cries out, I want more than I already have. But I think there's a way to live differently. I think there's a way to live as a generous person. I think there's a way to become a generous church. I hope and pray that the church I pastor becomes a generous church. I keep talking about it with our people. I hope it becomes part of our DNA. When Sebastian walked into my office not long ago, I started to think we could be a generous church. Sebastian's only eight years old, but when he walked in my office uh, a while ago, he walked in with a big old bag of change and dollar bills, mostly quarters. And he said, Palmer, today's my eighth birthday, and I brought $108 in this plastic bag, and I want want it to go towards the mosquito nets that our children's ministry is buying for Africa. He had a big old Jim Carrey smile. He was so proud. It was awesome. He said, next year I'm going to bring $109 on my ninth birthday. And, 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 and so when Sebastian handed me that, I thought, you know what, maybe our church could be on its way to becoming a generous church. And then a few months later in September, we had, as I told you, On Friday, we had our first Barefoot Sunday, and people left over 2,000 pairs of shoes. And I thought, maybe we're becoming a generous church. Two months later, at Thanksgiving, I asked people to bring boxes of food for a neighborhood and channel that we wanted to show the love of Christ to. And I said, we gave them a shopping list, and then it had to include a big frozen turkey, a big one. And I thought people might bring a few dozen boxes of food and turkeys. They left 250 boxes with frozen turkeys. That's a lot of frozen turkeys, by the way, to find freezer space for on one Sunday that we gave to one neighborhood in Chandler. When that happened, I thought, we could be. We're getting close to being a generous church. And then that December, in December, I, I, we took our first ever missions, uh, missions offering, our Christmas missions offering. And the first offering was for African Bible College. My older brother, Dell, actually Carissa, who shared earlier, her father, he had called me and he said, Palmer, you know, we've been rebuilding the African Bible College campus. Every building had been destroyed during the Civil War. And he said, we have every building completed except for the gym, the Macon Gymnasium. He said, because the gym is so big, nobody wants to take it on. Well, I said, how much, how much could it take? It can't be that much. He said, well, $50,000, Palmer. I said, 50000 We had never taken an offering that big. But I went to our people anyway, and I said, on December 22nd, I need you to give $50,000 on one Sunday. On December 22nd, our people gave, but they didn't give $50,000. They gave $110,000 on one Sunday and one offering. When that happened, I thought, we just might be very close to being a generous church. And then in January, I had a couple stop me after our first service. And for some reason, the young, uh, it was a couple, and this young woman gave me a $100 bill. And she, I said, what do you want me to do with this? She said, give it to someone who needs it. I said, well, I don't know who needs it. She said, you will know. After our third service, uh, a younger couple came up to me. I just married them in December. I said, how are things going? And he said, well, we came to say, please pray for us. He said, she just lost her job, and we don't even know if we can pay our rent at the end of this month. And so I said, 
I, you know what, let me give you something someone left with you after the first service. And I handed them, I was able to hand them that $100 bill. When, I ha- when, when a church begins to have people handing their pastors $100 bills and telling them to give it to someone who needs it, I think that church is very close to becoming a generous church. It's a much better way to live, isn't it? You see, when you live generous with your stuff, I think life becomes an adventure. When you become generous, you become less focused on yourself and more focused on others. When you start to live generously, you live less anxiously. I really believe that. I think you, you smile more quickly. When you live generously, it's easier to love. And when you live more generously, this life fills with all kinds of amazing memories. True religion, I think, is lived out when I start to care less about me and more about others around me. Let me say this next. If you look at your outline, this is the real kicker of what happens when you live out true religion. True religion becomes life-changing. When you start to live the way that James describes we're called to live, it really starts to change your soul. I make this statement sometimes. When you give your life away to change this world, God will change you. You see, I think there's a kind, there's a type of spiritual transformation. There's a kind of spiritual growth that only happens when we go to places that are broken and and we see God use our lives in new ways. I had a professor at Wheaton College. His name is Bruce Howard, Dr. Howard. We're talking about Wheaton College students. And he says, Palmer, he had a pile of surveys. He said, I just got this pile of surveys back from students who left Wheaton College five years ago. And one of the questions we asked them was, what had the most life-changing impact on your life during your years at Wheaton College? And he he said, the answer is surprising. He said, it wasn't a professor. It wasn't a class. It wasn't the chapel services. It wasn't even the college pastor who lived down the street. That was me. It wasn't even that. He said, the overwhelming number one response was, what changed my life the most as a student at Wheaton College was leaving the country to serve God. Many of them put that changed me forever. And, and I've seen that happen over and over in the lives of students. Even last night as I was having Krispy Kreme donuts with Jonathan and Mark, I heard him talk about Elliot, and Elliot gave his life over to God underneath a mango tree in Jamaica. You know, when you hear that, it's true. It happens over and over. When I, when I say that, I think about Allie from my church, The Grove. Allie, when she was in high school, started to hide bottles of alcohol under her bed. And it, as a 11th grader became an alcoholic, she got kicked out of school after school because she was experimenting with drugs. When she finished high school, her parents put her in rehab after rehab, and it never worked. She went to a Christian college. They thought maybe that would help. Uh, a year later, it still wasn't. They asked her to leave, and she tried rehab again. And then between rehabs, she stopped me at church on a Sunday morning. She said, Palmer, I hear you're going to Malawi. She said, I love, I would love to come and serve with you. I want to go and hold orphans. And I said, okay, Allie, come with me in June. Well, when some of my other staff heard that I had heard, that I told Allie they could go, they said, Palmer, no, Allie has a lot of problems in her life. Maybe she shouldn't go. And I said, no, maybe that's why she, she must go. And so Allie went, and for two weeks, pretty much all she did was hold orphans day after day. 
And after two weeks of holding kids who didn't have a mother to show them love, her heart was broke, not just broken, her heart was changed. Allie came back and never tried drugs again. She'll tell you that she came back and she never took another drink of alcohol again. Allie came back and the college allowed her to, to be, the Christian college allowed her back in, but she left. She left to go to Asia so she could serve with Youth for a Mission. She came back, and now she's been back like five times. She's just got back last week from like her sixth trip to Asia. She, her par- parents keep trying to help her finish college. She only gets in like half a semester at a time because she keeps leaving to serve God in other places. Her life, her parents will tell you, was radically transformed in Africa of all places. That's why I say when you start to live the way James calls you to, When you start to give your life away, something incredibly transformational happens. There's a kind of growth that only happens when when you live that way. I'll end with this. I'll end with this thought. In heaven, I really believe this, up in heaven, the place we'll all be one day, God waits and applauds true religion. I'm not making that up. We read that in the Bible. We read it, for example, in Matthew chapter 25. When Jesus was asked the question, Lord, when did we see you? He's, he's telling this story. You know the story well of the, the men with the talents, and some did nothing, and some did something great. And he said, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? This is Matthew twenty-five thirty-seven. Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? And he says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers or sisters of mine, he said, you did it for me. And then, I love these words in verse 21, he says, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. And first, in 2 Timothy, Paul compares what, God, what it will be like when we reach heaven to the finish line of a race. And he says, one, one writer paraphrases this to read, this is the only race worth running, 2 Timothy 4, 7. I've run hard to the finish, believed all the way. He says, all that's left now is the shouting and God's applause. That's a paraphrase of that passage, but I love that line. All that's left is the shouting in heaven and God's applause. I, for the first time in my life last November, I went, I, I, uh, someone invited me to go to the finish line in Tempe of the of their annual Ironman competition, which is just maddening. If any of you have done our triathletes, I don't know how you do an Ironman competition. And we got there just before nine o'clock. When I got out of our car, I heard the announcer on the PA system congratulating people as they crossed the finish line. He would yell out things like, uh, Andy Page, congratulations, you are an Ironman. He yelled, yelled out, Cindy Smith, you are an Ironman. They called the women Ironman too. And he would yell this over the PA. Well, as I'm standing there, it hit 9 o'clock. And at 9 o'clock, the music stopped. And he came on the PA and he says, this is a very special hour. He said, everyone that finishes after 9 o'clock, he said, they've been running now for 14 hours or swimming and biking and running for 14 hours. He said, at 9 o'clock around the world, when we hold an Ironman event, we always stop so that you get louder when you cheer. Because everyone that crosses now after 14 hours, I want you to know this, none of them thought they would make it here. None of them thought they would finish, cross the finish line. And then, so, and then they started to play U2 Streets with No Name. I don't know. He said, we play this all over the world. Well, as they started to cross the finish line, the crowd went nuts. 
And, he, and, and the next one up, I think he said something like, this is Joel Williams. He's an engineer from Chandler. He knows your profession. He really does, the PA guy. He says, Joel, you did it. And then he says this from the PA, you didn't think you could do it. But you, Joel, you, Joel, are an Iron Man, and everyone cheers. I saw a guy running, coming down the finish stretch without any legs. He's running on two prosthetics. I'm not making this up. In full stride. And they yell his name, and the crowd cheers. It's a lot like heaven. That's what the Bible says. You know, in Luke chapter 15, verse 10, we read that when your name, is written in the Lamb's book of life. The angels will cheer. They will applaud. There's a party when your name is called out in heaven. You see, God himself, we read in 2 Timothy 4, will stand there. And in Matthew 25, Jesus says, he will be there to say, well done. And he's going to yell out your name. He's going to yell out your name like, Don Blackburn, you did it. You didn't think you could do it. But you did it. You are an Iron Man. That's the kind of name he's going to call out in heaven. And the angels will cheer and God will clap. That's why I say in heaven God applauds true religion. I think finish lines are a lot like arriving in heaven. That's what happens when your religion is true. Can I encourage you to go and live that way? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your people here in Macon. God, keep using their lives to change the lives of people everywhere who hurt, right here in Macon, here in Georgia, and then in places all over this world. I give them to you, in Jesus' name, amen.